One. Happy Friday, everybody on the internet. This is the Brand Builders Podcast. To my the right, double your left. PC. Exactly. That is correct. <laughs> and you've got Thomas to your exact Montgomery. Right. To my right, your left, Thomas Montgomery. And I am Preston Rutherford. And together, and, and two other amazing people, we co-founded Chubby's Shorts. And we are here now making a podcast to try to shed a little bit of light on the mistakes and experiences we've gleaned along the way and hope that these lessons, along with cool books and materials and things like that we're learning along the way, <laughs> they can help you get better at building an amazing, strong, emotionally resonant brand so that you can generate more profits in a sustainable fashion over a long period of time. So with that, and with today's episode, what we're going to do is go through some rapid fire questions. A lot of them informed by questions and comments we've gotten from other folks, whether it be in person, over calls, or in LinkedIn comments, in hopes that we could just provide a super action-packed, info-packed experience packed, tactical application packed, rapid fire round of stuff for you to use right after you listen to this podcast. So without further ado, I will start the conversation by saying, Tom, hello, how are you today? I am good. I'm splendid. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Let us continue. Also, I love the uh, the intro of uh, checking out some sweet, sweet books. We're, we are <laughs> but humble idiots. Um, and one of, the, one of the fortunate things that has happened to us is we just got to be early in the whole direct-to-consumer world and um, had the opportunity to almost go out of business a couple of times. Um, it's a and good, hopefully, great, I should uh, say, opportunity. Learned learned our learned some lessons that are useful to share but also we're hoping to talk to other people um who have gone through similar um trials and tribulations that we have and then we're also looking through kind of influential books or articles or whatever um uh in our past and um share tidbits of those that we find particularly relevant or particularly useful um that we hearken to when we were leading our teams um because there are infinity books out there um, and infinity articles out there and not everybody can read them all. Um, and so um, we're hoping to share some of those um, and some of our, our kind of key notes from those just in the hopes that it's useful and the hopes that it provokes conversation. Perfect. Perfect context. And with that, why don't we just dive in? Question number one for you, Tom, what does brand mean anyways? And what does it mean to have a strong brand? Yeah, the way I think of brand is it's all about memory structures. Um, and funnily enough, I've been doing like a lot of research into memory palaces and how to like how to build memory. Like as a as me, if I want to re remember something, what are the things I do? Um, and it's funny, like a lot of the tenets that hold for building memory structures as an individual, you can apply to how to build memory structures for your brand. Um, but that's what I think of is is brand is how 
with how many people um, and which people are you building memory structures? How strong are those memory structures? How quickly does your brand come to mind when they think about your category? With how much affection um, and with what context does that bring? But to me, that's all like neurological. Um, and so um, uh, that's what it comes down to. But for me, is brand is um, the extent to which you have memory structures that mean something to your customer base. Um, and to have a strong brand means to me that um, when you think of the category that, that this brand is in, um, you think of their brand in system one thinking, you think of it easily, you retrieve it from memory easily. It's one of the first things, and if not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of this category, um, you have high affection towards it. You have an emotional tie to that. Um, and um, you understand the use case of that business and, um, and it fits. Now, that doesn't mean that that use case is the predominant use case. I think there are really strong brands that are strong specifically because they hit narrow use cases. Um, but, um, but I think that those are the tenets that I see as like having a strong brand. Mm. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, Preston. Um, with our definition of brand, then uh, I have a question for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you! I'll answer uh, your question with a question. What does it mean to strengthen your brand, and how does it manifest in business performance and the bottom line, the almighty bottom line? The almighty dollar. Justify it. I'm your CFO. Justify it to me. <laughs> <laughs> do you want more hey hey walk into a meeting hey do you want more money do you like money uh, you show me a 10x row as or you're out <laughs> oh you're out <laughs> there's average the tenure average tenure for cmos is two years dude <laughs> show me that row as like, kindly leave <laughs> kindly leave <laughs> What a good question this is. What does it even mean to strengthen your brand and how does it manifest in business performance and the P&L? So I think one of the things we would say is that because, and thank you for that wonderful definition, because that definition can be somewhat, uh, well, lack of definition, because the assumption is that what brand means is somewhat uh, ill-defined or amorphous, um, strengthening it can also just be just as ill-defined and, and amorphous. And so with that definition, I think one of the things that sort of we learned as it relates to strengthening it is that it should show up in, in data. There should be ways to, to measure, quantify it, et cetera. Traditionally, that has been in the form of surveys and um, increased aided or unaided awareness, brand favorability, some of these additional things like that, which is, which is fine, which is fine. Um, some of the problems, of course, that, you know, very expensive, uh, takes a long time to get the data, et cetera. But the, the general idea or some of the things that, that we thought were ways to sort of quantify strengthening of your brand is these, these memory structures that you talk about are things that people do online. Um, uh, they could be purchases, but they could also not be purchases. And all of these behaviors are indications of, of them having memory structures and taking action um, where, as we said, when they're in market, they're coming to you to purchase. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, they're not in market. 
So they're doing other things to demonstrate that they have interest in or are participating in or have a memory structure for your brand. And as you strengthen the brand, more of those things happen. And the thing that I think is maybe less understood or that we had to learn is that there are differing, let's call them quality levels to different behaviors. And so there's an effectiveness component with strengthening brand where you're driving more of the most valuable behaviors for your brand. And then how does it actually, so, so what, like, how do I then look in Google analytics and see that this stuff is happening? Or how do I then look at my PL and see that, okay, I've strengthened brand. This is then the impact on my business. Let's just say like we're, we're looking in GA, we're looking in Shopify. <clears throat> You're just looking at your traffic sources. It should manifest very simply in an increased baseline or increasing that resilient base of organic revenue, which, which ordinarily is the thing that we all deem is maybe a little bit of a black box, hard to explain. We don't know how it got there. And we certainly, because of that, we don't know how to grow it. Um, so that is what, what you can look at. And so from the perspective of uh, having more of that in your business, um, strengthening brand. Uh, as it relates to sort of like the profitability or impact on the P&L, I mean, the more of that owned and organic or let's call it unpaid uh, revenue that you're getting, I mean, that that does nicely translate to the bottom line, right? It's this idea that people aren't necessarily having to be prompted by a discount. So maybe there's a little bit more price insensitivity there. But all of these things should generally translate to um, increased profitability. One example is let's just look at the financial performance of LVMH. I mean, that, that business is growing as fast or faster than Google, uh, with net margins as strong or stronger than Google. Uh, so it's, it, it should translate to financial performance. I mean, that's, that's the reason why we do this in the first place to, to generate more profit dollars that allows us to generate more jobs, create more awesome products, uh, make more people happy. Um, and having a stronger P&L allows all those things to happen. So these are some of my thoughts on what it means to strengthen your brand and manifest and how it manifests in business performance and in the P&L. So then, Tommy Likey. what a perfect segue <laughs> to the Chubby's experience and a little bit of the journey that Chubby's went through. And so then I'll ask you this. When did you, Tom Montgomery, realize that there was a need to transition away from maybe an over-reliance, if you will, on some of the things that, that we used to do, heavy bottom funnel, conversion-based tactics, for instance? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Preston. Um, mm. uh, so Chubby's, we realized we needed to... Uh, shift away from uh, bottom of funnel. Um, I think there are two kind of salient moments when we when it when it hit home for me. One, we almost went out of business, um, and one of the big reasons we almost went out of business was because our cost structure was entirely out of whack. And one of the reasons that was the case was we were, we were spending a lot of money on <laughs> marketing and Facebook and Google, um, and we were reliant on them, um, and um, that felt bad. Um, the second one was kind of a dawning um, 
a dawning of a, uh, or I guess a revelation that, that we had that was, why is digital cool as it pertains to brands and retail? Um, mm. And um, and for me, like I came, we came from this world and I came from a world of like Silicon Valley software tech stuff. Like we founded the company in San Francisco. Before this, I was working in venture capital at uh, tech investors, right? Like when we got into e-commerce, surprisingly, it was thought of as e-commerce and it was thought of as like a technology business, which is like why we <laughs> chase revenue at all costs. We were like, this is great. We got this ROAS. We believed CACs. We believed ROASs. Um, and we were like, well, if we got this, we're going to scale this business to the moon. And surprisingly, we did find scale. Uh, we never found profitability. Um, but um, what we started to realize was, oh, no, this isn't, this is not a, some tech business. This is tech enabled. This is good old fashioned retail <laughs> brand. Like, a lot of people have been doing this for a lot longer than we have. We are not reinventing anything. But the unique thing that Chubbies did have, and we always had a sense of this because from day one, we were building content and being ridiculous, um, even though it was a little bit um, kind of scattershot. Um, we did know that these new ways of engaging with people um, was different. Um, where like we grew up in the era where there wasn't Facebook and then there was, right? So we got, we, we were familiar with like, I remember I, the, there was one company that I was connected with, um, uh, that, um, I was able to maintain a relationship with, I guess two companies and these were like through catalogs, right? So like that was the only way you could stay in touch with a brand that you saw a TV ad for or whatever, besides visiting their store every day or whatever, visiting your store every month was to get their catalog, right? But that was very infrequent. That was the minority of brands as opposed to the majority of brands. When digital hit and particularly social media, search engines, things like that, where there were these digital representation of representations of brands, now people had a reason to go check them out, engage with their content, regardless of whether or not they were in a shopping mood. And that was really differentiated where a brand could run advertising, quote unquote, and then that advertising gets shared with a million people um, and a million people subscribe to get your content from then on. And now, what, shit, I don't have to pay these TV guys anymore to get like eyeballs on my content. That's insane. Um, that was really different. Um, and so digital presented this way for consumers, frankly, to go out and engage in lighter weight ways than hopping in their car and driving to their mall or whatever it was. They could check out brands. They could check out styles. They could engage with content. Um, and that wasn't the way it was before um, digital came to kind of the state that it's, it's in today. And so what we started to realize is that was why digital was cool. It was digital was basically where your brand existed these days. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not saying that every single human on earth engages that way with brands, but that a representative sample of your audience engages in that way. And thus growth and trends in those audiences are really important for understanding trends in your brand. Um, in the same way that when you do a brand awareness survey or whatever you're doing, you're surveying a tiny portion. You're not surveying the entire U.S. population. That would be a little bit expensive. A um, little bit. And... Um, Anyway, so, so like that revelation was powerful because we had previously thought of our brand as sacred and it existed. Like one of the reasons we were hesitant to go into um, retailers was we wanted to control our brand. Um, and, oh, no, like what, if Nordstrom starts selling our product, like what, what are they going to show about our brand? Are they, you know, how are they going to represent it? They're going to be next to a bunch of other people. Um, how will our brand stand out? Um, do they know how to sell it? That sort of thing. And what we didn't realize was 
even in a Nordstrom experience, we still controlled our brand because our brand lived digitally. It didn't live there in Nordstrom. That's not, that's not the only place people interacted with it. Um, and that was very different. And so that really opened us up to say, okay, well, if our brand lives here, then we got to grow this damn thing and figure out how to do it. Um, so those are like the two revelation points was like one, just like systemic, like, <laughs> or rather like endemic, we just, we're going to go out of business. We had to figure out a way to grow organic revenue, uh, by hook or by crook. And the second was the realization hmm. that investments in building brand, uh, monetized across all the channels um, where people just shopped in normal old retail, right? It wasn't as sexy as an e-commerce business, um, but Nordstrom is an extremely kick-ass retailer, right? Like Dick's Sporting right. Goods. A lot of these places are kick-ass at their job of getting shoppers to come to their stores to check out these categories. And if you're not there, you're just missing sales. Um, and then what you have to do is control brand digitally. And so that's what emphasized brand for me. Those are kind of the two pivotal points. And you've called this out before, but yeah, maybe, maybe they know a thing or two about selling stuff. <laughs> you know, they've been They're doing this for... man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they offer a very valuable service. And it's also interesting to think through like, you know, we always thought about Amazon as this like, if Amazon exists, no other online retailer can exist who's aggregating other right. people's brands. And then you've got Revolve and you've got all these businesses that prove that wrong. You've got Huckberry. Right? Right. Like you've got a lot of these things that prove that wrong where it's like more about the, pro the problem that the user has is I want to understand that you know my taste. I want to have one place to go to get all the things that I need um, and be comfortable that they're going to work for me um, and that I'm going to find something that I like. And that's what Nordstrom offers is like they've got people who are really dedicated to rounding out that, that and not just Nordstrom, but all these people who are great at this. Um, and a good sign is they've been in business for hundreds of years. <laughs> they're pretty good at it. <laughs> um, and... Um, and so that's a really cool service that like Chubby's on our own, we couldn't offer. We couldn't be like, we'll also offer you every single other product. Like it's just not tenable for us. And that's why forever, again, like forever, this relationship between brands and retailers has existed. And we thought of it as an innovation that like, <laughs> we, we, and there's a certain degree of that, right? When the customer knows exactly where they're going and knows exactly what they want, they just want that one thing, boom, done. But when they want an experience and when like, there's a reason that still e-commerce is not the majority of um, total shopping is because people, it's not because like we're not there yet, right? Like you can get anything from Amazon in a day. Um, you like, it's because there's a cool experience. It's fun to go out and do that. It's an activity. It's getting out of the house. Um, and you go to these places that offer these curated, awesome experiences. Mm -hmm. and, and not only that, but there's this whole world of just people are doing other stuff in their lives. And Sometimes they're just going to be in a store and to your point, they maybe heard about you on digital. Maybe they follow you, but they've, you haven't maybe gotten them to the place where they're entering your brand name into their browser, but they're interested and maybe they're a little bit more of a, a casual follower, casual buyer. And I think the words of uh, Byron Sharp and you're just able to have more possible touch points. Same thing potentially with being on Amazon, just it allows you to fit into people's lives a little bit better. Like we're not necessarily only going to be the, the top of mind thing for all of these people all of the time, but it doesn't mean that if they don't want to go to our website or if they haven't gone to our website, that they're not a potential customer. And 
I think that's one thing you've also talked a bit about. We realized just if you look at the numbers, uh, spending 100% of your ad dollars for what, 5% of, of retail, if you're just selling through your website and the ability to, uh, I don't know if amortize is the correct term, but spread your investments in a way where they could manifest or um, turn to actual business performance across a much broader canvas just seemed to make a lot more sense. Yeah, the and Byron Sharp's a great um, person to bring up in this, and um, Jonah Schreiber um, also writes about some of this stuff. But like uh, the the um, the uh, idea that the uh, memory structures around a brand are different from the buying decision, the opportunity to buy um, a category, right? Like those are two different things, um, and. I think one of the things that was deceptive with digital and bottom of funnel marketing is you could then interrupt. Um, like if you were trying to get into Nordstrom to hop into that buying experience with no history and no credibility at all, tough, like it was a tough sell. And there are some brands that, that did it, right? Like they, they obviously had new brands come along. Um, and so it's not to say it can't be done, but way more difficult, right? Like you weren't just paying a few bucks to, to temporary slot next to you know, whoever it was, Polo in a Nordstrom store, right? Like you couldn't do that. Um, and so access to these buying opportunities was really, really limited. And what, what e-commerce and platforms like Facebook and Google offered was access to these buying opportunities. But like direct response advertising is no different than, the, than accessing a buying opportunity in Nordstrom, than paying those slotting fees with Nordstrom or in a grocer or whatever it is. No difference. Like you're trying to get in front of a customer when they have a buying opportunity, um, and that's 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 one use case for how you spend dollars. And when you're partnering with a retail partner, you're giving them some margin for that opportunity. When you're partnering with Facebook to do that, you're giving them some margin for that opportunity, and often way more than you're giving the wholesaler, the retail partner. Um, and that's deceptive because that's not the way we think of it. We think of that as marketing when it's, you know maybe it's in the category of marketing, but it's the same function is get the product in front of the customer when they have the need. But then over here, you're still missing brand building. You still have to go build memory structures. You still have to get into their system one thinking. You have to make sure that when they see that, you're the choice for a reason that isn't just your price or your features because those cost you money. And if you're always competing only in that way, you're going to you're going to race to the bottom, right? You're going to end up with a zero margin business, negative margin business. Um, brand is the only thing that allows you to compete outside of that, right? And that's memory structures, it's existing beliefs, it's sentiment, it's all that good stuff. It's the reason that they click on Chubby's, even though it's a higher price than somebody who's trying to knock us off and rip us off at a lower price. Yep. Um, and so that's really, really important. Um, and um, and so that distinction of okay, building memory structures over here. And then ha presenting buying opportunities over here. But like, there's a lot of ways to present, present your product in front of people for buying opportunities, just like there's a lot of ways to build memory structures. And sometimes they overlap, right? Like one of the best ways to have a build a memory structure around a business is to have a great product experience. Like mm -hmm. you buy whatever, you buy AirPods, right? And you have an awesome experience. You love them, of course. That, that makes you the next time if, you, if, the, if you, these mess up or whatever, yeah, I'm going to go with AirPods. If somebody asks me what headphones do you recommend? Okay, I'll go AirPods, that sort of thing. Um, so it's still, there's still some overlap with that, but the idea of building the memory structure versus presenting your product in front of people for a buying opportunity are very different. And in the old world, it was easy for, to recognize that difference because 
when they were shopping, they were in Nordstrom. They were in mm-hmm. the grocery store. But when they were brand building, they were watching TV. Like those are the two use cases. <laughs> right. And, right, right. Uh, and with the Facebooks and the whatevers of the world, we kind of merge those two ideas. The brands think of themselves as the people, as the store owner where the transaction decision is happening. And Facebook's out there, yeah, kind of building brand, but maybe brand's dumb to even focus on. But now, obviously, the sheen is off of that whole argument. And now it's, okay, how can I use these tools um, to build brand, right? Mm-hmm. But also get buying opportunities. So mm-hmm. anyway, a little bit of a diagram. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's beautiful. And maybe to transition to the next question for you, Thomas. One wait, of wait, the wait. things... It's your question. Your question. Your question. Fine. Okay, let me see here. Okay, Preston. Uh, now that we've talked about brand, how do you build brand? Mm. How do you do it? Okay, sweet. You've convinced me. <laughs> it's important. What do I do? That is such a good question. And thank you for asking it. The There are a few things I think that we learned along the way that might be helpful for listeners here. One of the things that we learned, and you talk about this memory structures and things like that, but potentially for some folks who's just sort of like, man, I just run Facebook ads and it's been working for the last couple of years and the performance of them is, is, you know, not looking as good. And I just got a PO from name your retailer. I don't understand what you mean by memory structures. Um, So what the heck do I even do if I've got to take one step today? maybe this, this hopefully not a diatribe will be helpful. One of the things that we learned is that it's all about behaviors. So all of this stuff translates into people taking some kind of action. Now with our bottom funnel tactics, that action that we are, where success is measured or we are successful is if we drive a lot of, you know, that last mile, that purchase. But as we think about building the actual brand and these memory structures, that's when we start thinking about what are the other behaviors? What's everything else that people are doing that isn't necessarily translating to a purchase? And it's, and obviously commonly spoken about as it relates to top of funnel or filling the funnel or there being a full funnel approach. But there are a set of, rather than just saying, hey, I'm filling top of funnel, one of the ways that might be thought about is there are these behaviors that represent the top and middle of the funnel, for instance, that people perform, actions that people are, are taking. And if your brand does exist in the digital realm, which it does, uh, you can see these things. You can see these things happening. So that's a way, before you start thinking about how you build brand, things that you're actually doing, one of the key things that you want to be able to do is just to understand is what I'm doing working or not. And so therefore having a framework for how to maybe measure or evaluate some of these things that you're doing quite important. So that's why we talk about behaviors and then what are the behaviors that represent the different pieces of the funnel so that you could say, did I do a good job at driving these behaviors? Uh, ideally the ones that are most valuable for your brand. So then more than maybe just saying, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. The wonderful thing about getting things that you can measure and having a team that is super curious and interested in learning and getting better over time is that you now have a feedback loop where you can try things and then you can see what happens. And you've got these behaviors that happen 
relatively instantaneously, or let's call it within some reasonable period of time where you can kind of connect these things. And you could say, okay, I'm going to try this thing. Let's see how it does as it relates to driving a behavior. Maybe it's like a following you in some form. Maybe it's searching for you, whatever it might be. But you can do a thing, see how it does um, in driving this digital behavior. And then you can start the learning process. You can find what works for you. And you don't have to turn into a... brand marketing agency extraordinaire, which I think sometimes is the thought that comes to mind. We're just like, I have to start doing things that I've never done before. You can simply just apply a different lens to either things that you've already been doing that you maybe weren't able to get a feeling for whether or not this was valuable. And maybe you weren't able to quantify the value of it. And maybe times got a little bit hard or you miss your monthly number and you ditch that activity. And now you're looking back and you're like, <laughs> Maybe that thing that I was doing that I kind of felt was important was actually good and I shouldn't have stopped that thing. So that that could be a potential outcome. Uh, the other is just that you keep doing the same things that you're already doing. Let's just say running your bottom funnel conversion stuff. But you also take a look at how, goodness, maybe I'm driving some of these other cool things, Tom, like you mentioned earlier, that uh, are potentially valuable. And maybe I should just take a look at those things as well and, and maybe just change the way I optimize my budgets based on those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, right, strengthening your brand, how do you do that? It's getting better at driving these behaviors. These behaviors happen when you've changed people's minds, basically, when they think about you differently. And the buying decision is no longer this rational, I'm getting three contractor bids and I'm going to objectively compare. Um, it's, it's more of, I think this category, I think this brand and, and that's it. Um, it is something that can be a, a very sort of like structured process. Um, sometimes it's viewed as, um, this is just, you need to get like some genius in, or you need to work with some super creative, brilliant person, and they're one in a million, and there's never a way that I could hire anyone like that. But but in reality, you could probably just do a lot of it with the people you have in your company. So it's, it's I think, one of those things that, and I think an objective of the things I'm trying to say are that anyone can do it. You're already doing it. There are already reasons why people choose you versus going to Walmart or finding the cheapest product on Amazon. And it's providing some level of a framework so that that reason can get more salient, stronger, uh, can be, can manifest in a variety of other ways, not just brand marketing, right? I mean, just how your product behaves, your packaging, what your name, your products, every single thing. Um, and then it's just, amplifying it and taking it to a, I think maybe a, a further place or taking it further over time um, so that that memory structure is strengthened. So ideally it's a, it's a framework, it's a structure that you can apply. Um, a lot of it most likely is what you're already doing. Are you on mute? 
You might be. Yes. Yes, I'm on mute. Of course. <laughs> I test out fantastic. everything I say on mute before I say it live. <laughs> I think this sounds. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. What do you do? You just yes. go live? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the thing that I've been researching a little bit is, mem- is like I said, memory palaces. Um, and it's really interesting. Like the, the, the people who are the best at remembering stuff are basically hacking their brains to remember stuff that they wouldn't normally remember, right? Like there, mm. there, are, thing, like, there are things that for us like, that we'll never forget, right? There are plenty of things in our lives that we'll never forget. But how do you kind of hack your brain? It's kind of an interesting thought process um, for uh, company builders out there to understand like, okay, these are the ways that the best memorizers on earth um, mm-hmm. do this. And, um, what they, what they do, and this is not like we're, we're asking people to do this, but I think these themes are really interesting. Um, so they use this idea called a memory palace. Um, and a memory palace is rooted in a physical location. Um, and like a home, like your home or something, a place that you know, really, really well that, you know, okay, I walk into the front door and then if I turn right, this is here. If I turn left, this is here, et cetera. Hmm. Um, and you basically plan a route through this, through what, through this, this memory palace, but through your home or whatever this location is. Um, and then along the way with whatever this foreign thing is that you're trying to remember, you link that foreign thing to something that you know and love, right? So like, uh, let's say I'm trying to remember an order of, uh, of objects and it's like, Banana, orange, pineapple, um, locomotive, mm-hmm. and hoopa stank. Um, hoopa stank's <laughs> easy to remember in that. <laughs> but banana, right? So maybe banana starts with B. And so um, I link that to Beyonce because I'm a huge Beyonce fan. And so Beyonce, when I walk in my front door, Beyonce is in my entryway with a banana. Mm. Um, and pointing me, um, to my, uh, office, um, where it's, uh, you know, I said orange, I think, um, where in my office there's, um, who, um, Oliver Twist sitting with an orange, right? So like, think of these ways to like relate these foreign ideas with relatable things that this person knows really well. And this is kind of an interesting thought process towards like, creativity right like um Mm -hmm. there's this notion of um of creativity not just being this like completely harebrained off the wall blabbity bloobity blorgity blorb that like has no (laughs) structure like is just out of nowhere um but it relates to something you know you're familiar with and then has this surprising twist right and i think the other piece that they try and infuse throughout this notion of these memory palaces is, is like funniness and interestingness so maybe beyonce is juggling the bananas that makes it more memorable um, mm. because there's something interesting that she's doing there's an emotional affect to that and so there's this like familiarity there's this um emotion and there's this surprise there's this kind of new thing right and all of those work together um, to give you memory. Um, and so as mm-hmm. we're, as we're kind of working as company builders, um, there's a lot of like that in why we created the products in the first place, right? Like we had a relatable right. problem that we were like, Oh, this is relatable. I encounter this in these familiar re- ways. And to think right. through what are the familiar kind of touch points to have for, for your customers and how can you infuse positive affect or positive emotion into that with some surprise, um, 
is like that's the creative process and it's not you're like you're going to get it right every mm-hmm. time but a lot of times your best creatives for that exact reason of really understanding the familiarity the 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 resonance with the problem and where people encounter it and where they encountered it your brand builders the company builders the people who started this thing are oftentimes the best creatives because they'll understand here's the familiar routine here's the here are the touch points i can make relatable and and digestible for this audience and so iterating in that vein with the knowledge of like, hey, if I can link these two really common things, really familiar things, but with a surprise, with a twist, with an interesting use case, like that's the, that's kind of an interesting way to go about it. So I thought that yep. was cool and it fit with a lot of like the learnings of like one of the things we talked about last episode is like, can you, by dominating a media, like a, a media channel, can you, mm-hmm. can you associate your brand with the media channel? And that's valuable if that media channel is really well known. So like it's all, it's a familiarity of, of associations with familiar, familiar items, right? Can you get associated with this really easy item to call to memory? Because if you can, you're way easier for you to enter system one thinking. I thought it was a cool concept and something that I, I didn't think about, I think enough when we were building Chubbies. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's, that's really interesting. I was actually, what, what got me thinking when you were like, um, yeah, that brand that I heard on the podcast or associated with that particular channel. One of the other things, uh, I was having a conversation where <clears throat> at least at the beginning, people were like, oh yeah, Chubby's, those are the shorts that always sell out. Or, you know, that was just like another association that existed that wasn't necessarily product focused or something about your brand values, but just an association with an experience, but that it contributed to this, this reputation or this idea that people have. Um, obviously one of the benefits of that is that it, that trains this learned behavior to when they do, a, they tell you about something you, you want to respond, but that was also what just one of the things that, um, I think is maybe somewhat consistent with the, the idea that you're mentioning, but neither here nor there. The next question, Thomas, that I have for you at this point is one of the things that I see a lot in LinkedIn comments, for instance, is this idea <clears throat> that, oh my gosh, if I'm going to make some kind of a transition away from the machine that I currently have, which is like, I need to throw 20% of my projected revenue divided by 30 every day. And I need to drive this much, this many purchases on my short-term attribution window. If I stop that in any way, if I pull any dollar out of that, I'm going to miss my number. Revenue is going to go down. I can't handle that. I don't want, I can't take a, a year or a month when I'm negative comping, huge ego hit, whatever, whatever. There's a lot of fear that this transition means I'm going to feel a lot of pain. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with that for a variety of reasons. So, um, they wonder, oh my gosh, like this is, this is scary. I don't know if I could ever do this. So I'm just going to keep sticking to the devil. I know because I don't know, like, what if it just doesn't work? What if I end up just wasting all of my money there? there, There's a lot of this, uh, fear of the unknown, if you will, even if you know, you got to make the change. So my question with that backdrop is what, what was our, the chubby's evolution transition, like any, any lessons, uh, any advice that you might give to someone who might be in the position where we were, let's call it pre-transition. I know it's not uh, black and white like that to maybe help them as they navigate their next steps. 
Yeah. Um, so, so I think the, um, the thing that I was thinking about when you were saying that was like, um, and, and I think at Chubby's we did a good job of this, was we didn't think of this as a gut-wrenching transition. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would quibble with the premise that it's a difficult transition. Now, like that may be the, the thought process, but at Chubby's, that's not how we thought about it. It was, it was we, we, the way we engineered it was like we were very performance-driven. And, it, and mm-hmm. because of the way we started to measure things, we were able to get to brand building incrementally by running test mm-hmm. after test after test. But that was a part of our machine or part of our engine mm-hmm. was constant improvement. Um, and I'm guessing most of these mm-hmm. brand builders out there have that same idea. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't that what we did was we said, throw everything out the window. Let's go hire a creative agency and pay them $10 million and let's have them worry about it. It was, all right, shit, this isn't going well. Let's try something. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, like let's think about this. Oh, this is an interesting nugget. Let's pursue that. Um, and so it didn't feel like a shift, but it felt like over a couple of years, we had gotten to a materially different place by following our nose and following our hunches. Um, and right. I do think our hunches were a little bit different, um, than, um, you know, maybe the, the direct consumer market in the early days. One, because we were just the canary in the coal mine of getting smacked in the face by like direct to consumer cycles, right? Like, um, uh, fundraising was a big thing that we thought we were going to rely on as a business. And it dried up for us very quickly. The moment our business wasn't like tripling <laughs> right? because our business was called Chubby's and we were selling tiny shorts to men, like nothing that any sort of like, you know, early stage investor would be thinking, yeah, this is, this seems kick ass. This um, is a slam dunk. Particularly given that any other men's business that had come before us was like a ruinous venture investment. Um, and that happened like <laughs> the moment we were on the fundraising circuit. Um, so I, I think there's an element of this that we just went through a lot of this early because the business we picked was really freaking hard. Um, turns out, um, and, uh, and, and anyway, so, so, um, we got there by necessity, um, but it wasn't this like wrenching change. It was thinking about the business slightly differently, trying things. Oh, that's starting to work. Okay. Let's think about it slightly differently. I think we did have patience. I think we also had this notion of like, we never, and I, and I'm guessing again, like most, most company builders will resonate with this. We never thought that we could build a successful brand without two things, really, at the end of the day. One, kick-ass product, right? Like building the best of these things. Um, The absolute best there is. And if it's not the best, then why are we selling it? Um, And then two, creativity, brand, like that that energy. and mm-hmm. we weren't like we weren't good at it at the beginning. If you look at some of the earliest Chubby's videos, they're not winners. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I personally have architected plenty of videos that uh, <laughs> not many of you saw, uh, <laughs> not many of you engaged with. Um, but um, and we were the actors. Like it, we didn't believe we believed that creativity was really important. It was table stakes, and we didn't believe that we could outsource that one because we didn't have any money. Um, but two, because we knew the story we wanted to tell, um, and we connected with that viscerally. And so, um, I think the, the hard piece, um, uh, about this is just realizing that and and being comfortable with failing a lot. Um, and, and even though you know the direction you want to go, the first things you try, you're not going to immediately be there. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Oh, <laughs> and um, and so I think that's really important. Um, and then understanding incrementality, understanding the incremental wins, understanding the directions you can go and how to measure that really important. And the last thing I'll say is for most businesses out there, uh, I'm guessing you can cut your direct response spend by quite a bit of money and not really see much happen to your business. Um, and I would play around with that idea because, um, if we think about buying opportunities, getting in front of people for buying opportunities is like, that's what bottom of funnel marketing is. Um, there, uh, there is a lot of spend that goes to people who are already high conviction for your product. Um, and a lot of the money you spend is convincing people who are already convinced. Um, we found that very drastically at Chubby's. And so as we cut spend, we saw our business not really get affected that much from bottom of funnel. And then we had the liberty to reallocate it in different places. Exactly. So many things that you said there right at the end will serve as wonderful topics in a future podcast episode. So with that, thank you, Thomas. It was a joy doing this with you today. Have a wonderful weekend. And until next time, everyone on the internet, thank you for your time and attention. Hope this was helpful and you have a lovely evening. Goodbye.